you uh, bow your heads with me? Father, it's, uh, it's good to be here this morning and to lift our voices to you, to be with each other, to hear a story like Sharon's that reminds us of some of the core issues that we deal with in life and how truly you are the one who can satisfy our soul. So Father, I pray that as we now turn to your word and ask ourselves what you have said to us and how that applies to our lives today, that God, we might understand you rightly. Lord, if I don't with my guests, uh, most of us have come in here today to, to worship you, maybe to seek you, to, to, to learn more about you. And Father, may we not be disappointed uh, over the next 30, 40 minutes as we talk about what you have said to us. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that all of that has come to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, it all started about three years ago when I was in Washington, D.C. I'd been invited by a close friend to attend a conference there, and we were staying at a hotel just within one block of the famous Washington Mall. And on Saturday afternoon, I had some free time, and so I decided to visit some of the museums that I literally had not seen in about 28 years since my eighth grade field trip to our nation's capital. And so starting with a quick lunch and then a tour of the Smithsonian, I was on my way across the mall to the Natural History Museum when I noticed right in front of me, the National Gallery of Art. And now folks, I got to tell you, I had somebody confess to me um, a little while back about Scottsdale Bible Church that they feel uncomfortable sometimes going to some of our events here at the church because they are what they call Bible stupid. In other words, he said, when I come to events and I'm with all of these people who know the Bible so well, it can be kind of intimidating and I just don't know the Bible very well, Jamie, I'm Bible stupid. And, and, and I can relate to that because when I went to the National Gallery of Art, I definitely felt art stupid. Have you ever felt that way before? I mean, I breezed through art appreciation class in college and I never really looked back. But I thought to myself as I stood there in front of the National Gallery, don't be a wuss, Jamie. I mean, stretch yourself, branch out, get a little culture beyond Rascal Flats and Winona Judd, and maybe you might learn something and even learn to appreciate what so many people in life obviously appreciate. So I went in. And I'll be honest with you, for the first two hours, as I looked at the Renaissance masters, to the Impressionists, to the Romanticists, it really wasn't doing all that much for me. And I realized once again that art is kind of like coffee. It's an acquired and a learned taste. And at least that day, my taste buds weren't being all that satiated. But then I entered a small room with just a few paintings, one on each wall, really. And they were simple landscape paintings, very realistic and rather breathtaking in their portrayal of the rugged vast landscapes. And each one displayed a different landscape, but you could tell that it was simply a continuation from the previous one, and there was one single human being in each of the four pictures. And most refreshing, below each painting in about two paragraphs were the artist's own words telling us what he was trying to communicate. And I thought to myself, finally, art I can get. I mean, I get this. I get what he's trying to communicate, and quite frankly, it's meaningful. And as I read the descriptions below each of these paintings, as the scriptures so poetically say, the eyes of my heart became enlightened. Because as the artist explained in his own words, each of these scenes was an allegory of life, the four different stages of life, and he was using both the beauty as well as the ruggedness of nature to communicate what happens on a spiritual and relational level in our souls during each season of life. And I thought to myself, that's meaningful. That's instructive, and this is profound. 
And as I got back to my hotel room a few hours later, it hit me, you know, this could be a sermon series. And I mean a really special series for a church to go through as we link the truth of God's Word with pictures like these. And sure enough, over the last couple of years, I put together a sermon series that we're going to look at over the next five weeks called The Voyage of Life. The artist's name was Thomas Cole. And the series of paintings that we're going to be looking at are aptly entitled The Voyage of Life. And let me begin by telling you a little bit about Thomas Cole. He has a very interesting story. He lived in the first half of the 19th century, an immigrant to America from England when he was about 18 years old. And he was trained in engraving back in England, but quickly realized that his real love was painting. And so not having any formal training, he did a short stint at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, but he was primarily self-taught, and at 26, he took up the full-time job of landscape painting. America at that time, as many of you know, back in the mid-1800s, was young and undeveloped, and Cole fell in love with the majesty and the beauty of nature. And so along with some other gifted painters, he founded what would become known as the Hudson River School of Landscape Painting. It was known for its very realistic paintings of American landscapes, and the Hudson River kind of followed the writings of guys like Cooper and Emerson in associating nature with virtue. And they sought to create a strong emotional reaction when people would see the vast landscapes that they would paint. And so achieving a popularity rather quickly, Cole traveled through much of Pennsylvania and Ohio, eventually moving to Catskill, New York, where he painted lots of scenes along the Hudson River throughout the mountains and the woodsy terrain of the eastern part of the U.S., And so what was really fun for me a few years ago when I was researching all of this is I did a study break in western Maine where my folks had a condominium at that time and actually walked some of the trails up Mount Washington that Thomas Cole had hiked 160 years earlier and painted scenes from. It was really kind of cool to do that. Cole married at the age of 35 and had five children, and he died from a lung infection eight years later, or I'm sorry, 12 years later when he was just 47 years old. And when Cole died, he was at the height of his popularity, one of the most sought-after landscape painters of his day, having done two European tours and dozens of paintings that would have been displayed all throughout the East and the Midwest, which was most of America at that time. And one of his most popular series of paintings are the ones that we're going to look at over the next few weeks entitled The Voyage of Life. Pause right there, folks. I like that phrase, the voyage of life. Don't you? I mean, in a day and age where you and I and our world has reduced life to a list of techniques, where life is something more to be accomplished and to do and to succeed at, something to become sort of overcome and mastered in our highly pragmatic, high-tech, low-touch culture, it's kind of refreshing to be reminded that life was originally designed to be a journey or a voyage that one embarks on and traverses throughout this world. I mean, life is not some artificial hard drive that we keep filling up and crunching until it finally dies and stops. No, life is a voyage. It's a journey. And it's good to see life that way. Don't miss this. Voyage denotes more of a pilgrimage, a journey that's about beauty and relationship and less a technique that's to be mastered and conquered. And from reading many of his personal letters and diaries, I can tell you that this is precisely how Cole viewed his life, as a voyage. And I think there's great value in getting back to this idea, especially when it comes to our relational and our spiritual lives. 
And so what I want to do in our time remaining this morning is share with you three introductory ideas about this idea of a voyage. Three things that come right from the scriptures, that come right from the Bible, that are, we also see and are confirmed in Cole's paintings here. And so here's the first thing, and that is that the voyage that you or I are on are, is filled with wonder and disillusionment, beauty and ugliness, joy and sadness. Now get this, all at the same time. Have you found that yet? The journey that you and I are on is filled with wonder and disillusionment, beauty and ugliness, joy and sadness, all at the same time. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that life is a package. All of it together, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, not just some compartmentalized, whitewashed aspect of it that most Americans are trying to create in their lives. No, all of life is given to us as a package. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, when you trust God as the center of your life, you've got to believe that he's in every aspect of it, working in and through every aspect of it. It's the voyage. Look with me at how the scriptures declare this to us. If you brought a Bible, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning at verse 1, and then we're going to skip down to verse 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, or you can look up here on the screen. Look at how it's the Old Testament confirms this to us. God is talking here, by the way, through his servant Moses. He says, So it shall be that when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you, and skip down to verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Now, folks, focus on that twice-repeated phrase there, blessing and curse, and then that phrase life and death, and realize that that's the voyage. In other words, it's full of blessings and curses, full of things that bring life to our soul, but also in a fallen world, things that are going to bring death to our soul. And though we obviously try to embrace the blessings and the life parts and thus avoid the curse and death parts, I mean, it's what this passage is telling us, please realize as well that in a fallen world, both blessings and curses, life and death, are going to be a part of the voyage. And we do great benefit to our souls and our lives by recognizing life as such, by honoring the reality of both seeing life as a package, the voyage that it really is. I find that so many people, especially in a town like Scottsdale, which quite frankly is trying to whitewash all the nasty things out of our lives. I mean, do you remember what Daryl used to call Scottsdale the Disneyland for adults? I mean, it's a temptation that you have in a town like this is that we tend to deny that life is a package. It's a voyage of ups and downs, wonder and disillusionment, beauty and ugliness, joy and sadness. And so in Cole's paintings that we're going to be looking at more closely in the coming weeks, one of the first things you're going to notice is how he encapsulates all of this. So, so notice the first one there. Either look at the card we gave you up here on the screen called Childhood. I mean, this whole painting is just full of the blessings part of life. You've got to love this painting. I mean, it's serene, lots of light shining through, foliage everywhere brimming with life. There's a guardian angel hovering over this newborn toddler who's in the boat there. And I don't know if you caught it, but his arms are outstretched as if to say, I'm here. Isn't it great? I mean, this whole painting is just positive and full of life. 
And then as the voyage progresses into the teen or youth years, give me another click here, guys, there's still, as one author calls it, a lot of wonder and wildness to life. As the youth grabs the helm of the boat here and embarks on the journey into great dreams and positive hopes, I mean, we're going to take an entire message to look at this picture here, but just notice here how this, this guy is dreaming of castles to build and mountains to climb. And like so many youth, he just grabs the helm himself and says, I'm going for it. I mean, it's just full of dreams and endless possibilities. So you have two very positive paintings that you look at and your heart is kind of lifted up. But then look at the third one called adulthood. And now everything has changed. Can you relate? I mean, the waters get rough, the boat gets battered, the clouds are now forming, and the terrain that was once teeming with life is now rocky and dark. And so what do we do during those times? I love it. Like the guy in the boat, we hit our knees. In fact, it's fascinating. There's actually two sets of these paintings called The Voyage of Life painted by Cole. The first set, which is now very popular, hangs in some unknown museum in New York. The second set hangs in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. The reason that there were two sets is because early on, uh, when Cole painted the first set, there was some politicking going on in which there was a disagreement on who really owned them because they were commissioned by somebody else. And there was a falling out between Cole and this guy who commissioned it, and the guy who commissioned it won and took the paintings. And so Cole got all depressed, as many artists can, and he went on a European tour. And during his European tour, he painted this second set of photos, and they now hang in the National Gallery. Fascinating fact, though, is that during the first set of paintings that, again, hang somewhere in New York, the guy in the boat in this third painting is standing, not kneeling. But in the second set, after Cole had gone through some very difficult times in his life, losing his fourth child in childbirth, having some constant criticism of his art, going through the whole voyage of life controversy, dealing with his own internal dragons of ambition and all that other stuff that he was plagued with, he hits his knees in this, second, in this third painting here, the second time through. I mean, folks, don't miss this. It's the voyage. It's a journey that's filled with wonder, disillusionment, ugliness, hope, joy, and sadness all at the same time. And so my challenge to you is to see it and expect it as the package that it is. Don't keep wishing and hoping that life will be sanitized or maybe even kinder and gentler because the voyage is not always going to be this way. And you rob yourself of massive opportunities, now don't miss this, even knowing God in the process. Because as we're going to see in a minute, peace and purpose, hope and joy is found in all of life. God is found in all of life. That's the whole point of the incarnation of Jesus coming into a fallen world and giving us himself. And so again, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I see this play out. I mean, as many of you know, our economy right now is just in shambles. I mean, it's a huge downturn. And believe me, our church feels this significantly. I don't mean our church administratively. I mean our church as in all of you. It, weekly, we're getting calls of people who have lost their jobs or in financial crisis, and that leads to relational crises and other things. I mean, our pastors are just like front and center in dealing with many folks who are experiencing a lot of pain in this economy. Who would have thought the town that you go to to get away from it all the town that you go to in order to vacation, the town that you retire to so that you can live out your life in ease and pleasure has experienced a fallen world. You can't get away from it. And yet what is so awesome 
is how we see God front and center in so many of these stories. There's a guy in, my, in a Bible study I lead throughout the week who said, nine, ten months ago I lost my job. It was my core terror. It was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. He says, I, it, with tears as I cannot tell you what God has done in my soul in the last nine or ten months. In fact, he's starting a ministry in this church to people who have experienced job loss because God has done such amazing things through such a difficult time. Aren't you glad that he honored the voyage and the journey for what it is? The first thing we need to realize, folks, about the voyage of life is it is a journey marked by varying, even polar experiences, but it's all part of the journey. And you do great justice to your soul to recognize it as such. Now, Believe it or not, this is all just preamble stuff. It really is. There's so much more to understanding life as a voyage, so much more. And so notice with me a second key thing, and some of you are really going to relate to this one, and that is that the voyage seems long at times, but it's over before you know it. Amen? The voyage seems long, but it's over before you know it. And so check this out. One of the things that you experience when you look at Cole's four-part Voyage of Life series all at one time, which we've given you here on the, the card today, is how fast life really goes. And that before you know it, you're at the fourth picture, the ocean of eternity there that's on, on the back there. I mean, and it's just a blinking of an eye, and it's gone. And so look at that fourth picture there entitled The Old, old Age. And notice how different, again, it is than the ones before it. The man is now old. The boat is about done. The waters are no longer turbulent, nor is the foliage all fresh and green. But the vast ocean of eternity is now before him. And the guardian angel is now still there, and the light is shining once again, and it reveals the expanse of the heavens and, and the vast ocean. And the idea is that a new era, as Thomas Cole says, is now dawning for this weary voyager. And folks, you've got to believe that like so many people experience in real life, that this old man was thinking, man, did that go fast. I mean, while building the castles and climbing the mountains and traversing the rough waters, it seemed long. But now that I'm facing eternity in the last few moments of my fourth quarter, I don't know where all the time went. And that's the point is that the voyage seems long, but it's over before you know it. And as we're going to see in a minute, this has profound implications, if you can own this, on how you and I are going to live and view life on a spiritual and relational level. But before we get to that, let me show you how the Bible confirms this fact in like inarguable terms. Look at what the psalm writer says in Psalm 103, verses 15 to 16. I love this passage. He says, As for mankind, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it's no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Now, this is kind of a downer of a passage, isn't it? Like you're going, well, that's not really uplifting. Yet this contains some rugged truth in it for you and I that I believe can make all the difference in how we view the world around us. Break this down a minute. I love that imagery of grass and flowers. Why? Because it's something all of us can relate to, right? Got grass? Ever seen grass? Got flowers? All of us can relate to that. And it's simply telling us that just like your own grass is here for a season and then turns all brown and dries up, and even here in Arizona, where some of you plant winter grass, you know that still you got to go through that brown stage, right? 
And just like you have flowers, and the flowers, you know, especially if they're the kind that, that are only seasonal, are here for a short time and then are gone. Or even I love the wind analogy here that it brings in because in the Midwest we have dandelions. Remember dandelions? And what happens when dandelions die? They turn all kind of fuzzy, right? And then when the wind hits, you remember what happens? They just sort of blow away. That's the picture that the guy's giving us here. And he's simply saying that, that life is like that. It's here for a season, seemingly long, but then it's over before you know it. And the point is, is that the reason the Scriptures tell us this is they want us to know that life is short. None of us know how short, and so make the most of it. On a spiritual and relational level, find out what it's all about and make the most of it. Don't just get caught in the moment. Don't just think that you got 80 years before you or 30 years before you or what have you. No, it's telling us to look beyond that, see the brevity of life, and realize that there might just be this thing called eternity, and that might bear on what you do, who you are, and how you see life now, especially when it comes to God and your most important relationships. It's a good thing to realize this. There's a website that's kind of freaky out there called deathclock.com. Deathclock.com. It's based on loose actuarial data. And what they do, if you go to this website, I'm not telling you to go to it, but you're welcome to, is that you enter your birth date, you enter your sex, male or female, whether you smoke or not, and then they have you enter your BMI, your body mass index, which they help you figure out based on your height and your weight. And when you enter all of this information and then hit check, it sends you to a screen that gives you the exact day and date of your death. <laughs> and as if that were not enough, another screen pops up in which it tells you exactly how many seconds you have to live and it's counting down. So there you are at this website looking at the date of your death with how many seconds you have to live, and it's going down. And so I went there again this week. I've known about this for a few years, and I entered my information, and I did not lie about my height or my weight, and it gave me the date of Friday, October 16th, 2037. You might want to write that down. That's when your pastor... <laughs> It's going to be with the Lord. Friday, October 16th, 2037. And it said that I have 904,730,000 seconds to live. So I did the math. About 28 years left for Rasmussen. That's not too bad. And though I don't think this is true, again, it's based on loose actuarial data. And none of us can, can know at all when our, our, our death is going to be. I'll show you a minute. I, I think this has some, some implications there, though, for our lives. What I thought was most perplexing, you've got to laugh at this one, is that, I, and only I would do something like this, is I decided, okay, well, how many more years do I get if I lose 20 pounds, right? That's how I think. <laughs> so I actually adjusted my body mass index to 20 pounds lighter than I am now. And do you know what it gave me? I'm not kidding. One stinking more year to live. <laughs> that was it. I thought, do you know how hard it is to lose and keep off 20 pounds for 28 years? For one year? I'm, I'm praying about it. I'm telling you, that's not a no-brainer. I thought, fat, happy, one, I don't know. I mean, golly. And again, I'm not saying that you all should go to this site. Many of you probably will now, and I'm not sure it's all that accurate, and nobody has an idea when we're going to die except God. But what I think I like about this site is it's a really good reminder of the brevity of life, right? 
It's a wake-up call, true or not, that, that when you look at a computer screen giving you the date, possible date, of your death, that it makes you think about how short life really is. And that's the point, that though seemingly, seeming long at times, life in the grand scheme of things is not long. It's really short compared to eternity, and we're called to make the best of it. Uh, some of you might know the name of Alonzo Mourning, especially some of you uh, basketball uh, enthusiasts. Uh, for much of his career, he was a center with the Miami Heat, and Mourning during the 1990s was an incredible basketball player. He was a seven-time NBA All-Star, two-time Defensive Player of the Year, and for much of the 1990s, he just dominated the NBA. And yet toward the end of the 1990s, this guy who was in great health and fitness was diagnosed with a kidney ailment that threatened his entire life and career. And he had to go through a kidney transplant, and it was successful, thankfully. And he did something that most players would never do. He went back playing in the NBA. And yet when he went back playing with the NBA, NBA he went with a very, very different attitude than he had during most of the 1990s. Look up here on the screen. Let me read for you a portion of an interview that happened with Alonzo Mourning when he was heading back into the NBA about five, four or five years ago. He says, I remember five or six years ago, I felt like I was Superman. Nobody could stop me. First time All-NBA, Defensive Player of the Year, you name it. I was getting all the accolades because of my so-called invincibility. But I was humbled. He says, I realized that I've been given another opportunity to live my life, and I'm going to relish this opportunity and treasure this opportunity to get this like it's my last. Folks, that's the attitude. That's the attitude of anyone who recognizes that though the voyage seems long, and all of us when we are young and even in middle age, even into old age, think that we got a long time left, the reality is, is that it might be over before we know it. And that what God tells us to do is to make the most of it. Relish every opportunity like, it, like it's your last. That life is too short to waste. It's too short to mess around. And we're to live each day, as we're going to see in just a second, as the gift that it is from God as the voyage that we're meant to journey on. And so track where we've come from. The voyage is a package. I mean, filled with blessings and curses, all the ups and downs. The voyage seems long. I mean, it seems very long, but it's over before you know it. And so we need to live each day as if it matters, as if it's our last. And this brings us then to our last thought about the voyage as we're setting up this whole series. And yet this is the most important thing that I'm going to share with you today. You ready for this? And that is that the voyage is not to be journeyed alone, but it's to be traveled with the one who put us here in the first place. And this is where it's all leading. It's where the paintings are leading. It's where the sermon series is leading. It's what we need to cap off with today. That this voyage that is filled with all these ups and downs, this voyage that seems long but it's over before you know it, is also a voyage that is not to be journeyed alone. It's to be journeyed with the one God who put us here in the first place. You know, this is a truth that obviously the Bible affirms like over and over and over and over again. Look at one key passage in the book of Acts in the New Testament when Paul the Apostle, one of the first missionaries for Christianity, is speaking before a very skeptical and intellectual group of philosophers. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 28. This is one of my all-time favorite passages. 
Paul says this, he says, And he, God, made from one, meaning Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In other words, God made us. He's also determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we exist. And even as some of your own poets have said, we also are his offspring. Now, though there's a lot being said here, for our purposes this morning, with this idea of the voyage, I want you just to pick up on two things, two key things that are being said here that are very meaningful for you and I today. First, notice that it is telling us that God has placed us here on this earth and even in our specific place and setting. Did you notice that there? You might not believe that, but that's what the Bible affirms, that God is the one who has placed us even in our specific setting that we find ourselves in. It said God made mankind to live on the face of the earth, even their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, which simply means that there are no accidents when it comes to where you were born, how your life has progressed, you being here today. God has been sovereignly in control of all of it. He has had a plan and a purpose for your life. He made you. He put you here. And then with this understanding, notice a second key thing then, and that is that one of our primary purposes then for being here is to seek and find God and discover meaning and joy traveling this world with Him. I love it. It says there in verse 28, for in Him, don't under, don't, don't overlook that, in Him, we live and we move and we exist. We are his offspring. And so in him, we find our meaning and our purpose. In God, we travel this world. And folks, what you need to know is that theologians, especially over the last 100 years, have had a wonderful word that our culture uses all the time to describe this. And that's the word relationship. That it's through a faith relationship with God as we're going to see in a few minutes here in the following weeks, through his son, Jesus Christ, that we're to voyage through this life. That we're not to voyage it alone, as so many people try to do, because we tend to be rebellious and very self-sufficient. No, we're to voyage in and with God. And it has everything to do with what we call a faith relationship. A relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, that's built on trust and faithfulness involving things like accepting Jesus Christ for the very first time for salvation and then learning to pray to him and then discovering him in his word, the Bible, and then learning to obey him and follow him and then using your gifts and your passions to serve him and then to love others and deepen in your love for others both inside and outside the fold and so much more. I mean, the awesome thing about this idea of a journey is that you're not put here to journey alone. But you were put here for a purpose, first and foremost, to find your satisfaction and your meaning in Him. And we're going to talk more about how we do this in this upcoming series at each stage of life. You know, one of the most fascinating and revealing things about Thomas Cole's life is that he really didn't come alive until he was almost 40 years old. It's true. I mean, you would think that growing up in early America where like everybody and your brother had some sort of Judeo-Christian heritage that you just kind of would, you know, naturally slide into the fold, but it wasn't true for Cole. For whatever reasons, he really journeyed alone until he was about 40 years old. Remember, he only lived to be 47 years old. 
And so sometime in the late 1830s, after Cole had experienced phenomenal success as a painter, as well as a lot of heartache, as we've talked about through trials and difficulties, something happened inside of him where he realized that life was not meant to be journeyed alone. And in line with the passage that we just looked at in Acts 17, Cole began to seek and grope for God, and he found him. And he found him through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it was at this point that as a newborn Christian that Cole painted the Voyage of Life series. It was actually a celebration of his newfound faith. And this is a special thing, but his pastor back then also became, after his death, his biographer. His pastor sat down and wrote a 450-page biography about the life of Thomas Cole. Wouldn't that be cool if your pastor ever did that to you? Don't hold your breath. Anyways... Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to read for you. I read the biography. I want to read for you what his pastor said about him during this time of his life. This is so cool. He said, and I quote, The Voyage of Life series was dear to him for the reason that it was a memorial of the time when his heart was moving into the blessed faith of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? And so it was at this point when Cole started to not journey alone, but to journey now with Christ, that his spiritual and relational life came alive. And he was a totally changed man. First thing he did was get baptized and confirmed and receive communion for the first time in the Episcopal church that he was attending there. Can you imagine this well-respected artist that hung around, you know, quite frankly, a lot of people who didn't want anything to do with God all of a sudden announces getting baptized and getting confirmed and taking communion in front of all of his well-respected colleagues and his family. And then he became good friends with his pastor, Louis Noble, and together they designed and built a new church when a fire burned down the old one. And Cole's art took on a totally new direction with a lot of meaning and purpose. The church and the Christian life became his predominant themes, and he saw God anew and afresh in nature, as many of you have experienced. And the Voyage of Life series became an instant hit, winning acclaim throughout all of America and Europe. And in a day when art was not produced in mass at all, upon his death, they printed 10,000 prints of the second print that we're going to look at, this print on youth, and people bought it up like it was candy. And probably most profound is that Cole became known by those around him for his piety, his humble faith and love, and he became known as a man of prayer. I mean, he was devoted to prayer. In fact, his pastor writes in his biography that he would never pick up a brush to paint again unless he prayed each time. And his parting words when he died at such a young age, I don't know if you caught them earlier when I put them up on the screen, but his last words were quite profound. He simply looked at his wife and his family, and he knew he was dying, and he said, I want to be quiet. I want to be quiet. Kind of like that fourth painting that he painted. His boat was gently going into the ocean of eternity, and he was basically saying, I want to enter my rest in the presence of my God. Truly, Cole learned the greatest lesson of all about the voyage in his last seven years. He learned that it wasn't designed to be traveled alone, but to be traveled with the one who put him here in the first place. And it changed everything about his life. He lived well, and he died well. And the parting point that I want to leave with you here this morning is simply this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that it's never too late then to begin or even begin again the voyage as God has intended. It's never too late. Think about it. Do the math. Thomas Cole lived 80% of his life really without walking with God. 80%. And it was only in the last 20%, really the, the last half of the fourth quarter, that he decided to walk with his maker, decided to walk with Christ. 
And it hit me a few years ago when I was studying this that if Cole could do that at 40 with more than 80% of his life behind him, then certainly you and I can do this with whatever circumstances we have been dealt with in life, right? In my last church, there was a, a guy that everybody knew. It was a little bit smaller church than this, obviously, about 1,300, 1,400 people. And uh, there's a guy that everybody knows. He works for the youth ministry. And he's one of these guys where either you love him or you hate him. Do you have friends like that? I mean, he was just boisterous, extroverted, tell it like it is, and you just either loved Dick or you didn't like Dick. And most people, thankfully, loved him because they just saw his heart. And, and this guy was an ex college basketball player, really tall and successful businessman in, in the Cleveland area, but just so on fire about his faith that you couldn't have a conversation with him without somehow bringing it back to faith. You know the kind, right? And he worked great with our youth ministry. Uh, one of the areas that he was not able to have great success on because he came to Christ very later in his life was with his family. Have you ever found that family is sometimes the toughest? And I don't mean his wife and children. I mean his dad, his uncles, things like that. But Dick was very persistent. In fact, he once went and visited Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida. And uh, at that time, D. James Kennedy, the very popular pastor, was still alive. And uh, he had taken his uncle to church. And his uncle had dug his heels in over the years so much that his uncle said, I'm going to go to church, but I'm not going in the sanctuary. That's a guy who digs his heels in, right? So picture his uncle going to church, you know, uh, Dick's old uncle. And he's out there in the foyer, and Dick and Carla going to worship. Uncle says, I'm not going in. Sat there in the foyer during the whole time. And so Dick and Carla went in worship. They came out. They found their, their crabby uncle. And uh, at, right at that moment, D. James Kennedy walks by. Can you imagine? I mean, this is a huge church. D. James Kennedy. Dick grabs him. And he says, Dr. Kennedy, I got my uncle here. He's in his 80s. And he hasn't accepted Christ yet. I want you to go talk to him about Jesus. Now, what's a pastor going to do? If he says no, God's going to kill him right on the spot. And so <laughs> obviously he says yes. And so he goes over, and here's this nationally renowned pastor who, you know, trying to, to convince his uncle to accept Christ. Uncle have nothing to do with it. To this day, he's not accepted Christ that I know of. I mean, that's how tough this guy was. Uh, Dick's uncle was obviously the brother of Dick's dad. And Dick's dad was just like him. Dick's dad, at the age of 83, was one of these old curmudgeons that, you know, kind of a man's man, dig his heels and never want anything to do with religion. That was for weak people and all that other stuff. And you know the type. And uh, yet, living in Dick's house... I mean, there wasn't a conversation went by in which uh, Dick didn't try to convince his dad about Christ. His dad's health eventually went downhill before he died, and, and he went to live with Dick. And boy, was he a goner at that moment. Because <laughs> within about two months of living with Dick, his dad finally accepted Christ. Now, you guys need to know, I, I'm, I'm a consummate skeptic. Have you figured that out about me? So when Dick told me that story, I said, well, duh. I mean, the guy's living with you. He's going to say anything to get you off his back, right? I mean, I, I, that's what I was thinking. Like, is this real? Is this not real? I mean, come on. The guy dug his heels in all these years. And so I started watching his dad over the next six months because, you know, his, his dad would be coming to church. He's in a wheelchair. He had no choice. You know, he's being wheeled into church every Sunday, you know. And, <laughs> Dick's got him, and you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. You know, he's wheeling his dad into church, you know, and thinking, the guy's got no choice. What's he going to do? And as I started to talk to him, I started to probe a bit. Is this real? I mean, is this really it? And I got to tell you, folks, even for a consummate skeptic like me, I realized in talking to him, there's a real transformation that's gone on in this guy's heart. At the age of 83, Dick would tell me when he put him to bed, he'd be crying. Each night in the last days of his life, crying for all those wasted years, crying for what he had done to his wife, for crying for what he had done to his kids, 
crying for the wasted years that he had lived. And, and he said, I just want to make the most of my last years. He started telling all of his friends about Christ, his, his brother, his uncle about Christ. I mean, it was just amazing. And I remember thinking to myself, like Thomas Cole, when I saw Dick's dad, I thought it's never too late. It is never too late for a turnaround. It's never too late to do business with God, as we saw last week with the prodigal son, to make your way home to the farm. So here's the three questions I want to leave you with this morning. You ready for this? And that's the three things we've looked at. I want you to wrestle in this whole series with what it's going to be for you. How are you going to view and live your life from this point on? That's what this series is going to scream to us. So first question, is it going to be a voyage and a journey, or are you going to continue to treat life like a technique and a job? See it as a voyage. See it as a journey. See where that gets you. Secondly, is it going to be lived to the full with every moment counting, or are you just going to get through it and survive in some mundane, self-protective fashion? I encourage you to see it as the journey and live it to the full. And then if you affirm both of those things, it leads you to the third one, and that is, is this voyage going to be journeyed alone, or is it going to be journeyed with the one who put you here in the first place and has given you a pathway back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ? Those are the three things I need you to wrestle with as we journey through this series called The Voyage of Life, okay? Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, your goodness and your glory shines through in just about every aspect of our life if we look close. It shines through in nature. It shines through in relationships. It shines through in our family and our kids. It shines through in disciplines like art. Lord, we're going to see that over the next few weeks if we haven't already today. And God, I pray too that as we um, embark on this journey as a church, looking at life as a voyage, that God, you continue to keep us focused on what this voyage is about, how you originally designed it to be. Continue to bring us back to things like faith, your son Jesus Christ, the word of God that guides us into truth, the Holy Spirit who empowers our lives others around us whom you've asked us to be deeply involved with that we might love and care for and at times even speak truth to. God, remind us of the spiritual and the relational nature of this voyage and how that can impact every other area of our life, politically, socioeconomically, everything. God, we thank you for Thomas Cole. We thank you for the life that he lived. And even though very, very short and tragic at the end, leaving behind a wife and five small children, that God, he left a legacy through his paintings and through his life that we can learn from. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. As we wrap up here with one last song, God, would you um, be pleased with what you hear? We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.